And now, John and Jan Baxter. Hi, I think you just get John. <laughs> I'd be disappointed if somebody told me that too. But there's Jan, did you stand up? <laughs> well, it's great to be back here. Um, the first time I stood in this pulpit, I think, was 1988. Yeah, we were starting a new church over in St. Petersburg, Florida, for the Baptist General Conference. And uh, Cal Merritt was silly enough to invite a young, younger church planter. Uh, and Trinity Baptist has been involved with the Baxters since 1988. You helped support us as we started the church in St. Petersburg. You also gave us a very generous gift when we bought our first building a few years later. And then we had the audacity to come back here in 2002. And, well, maybe it was a good deal. We said, if you'll support us, you'll actually get rid of us. <laughs> uh, the exact opposite side of the world. That's how far away we promised to go. And since uh, 2002, Trinity's just been a wonderful supporting church of ours. And I, I can't tell you how grateful we are for the, the years of partnership with you. you. You guys have just blessed us incredibly. I'm going to say that again at the end, but I wanted to start with that. Uh, let's pray for a second. Can we do that? Our Lord Jesus, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for this wonderful country that you have blessed us with. But, Father, I know as uh, with all blessings, um, they really don't belong to us till we give them away. And I know that you bless this country so that we could help bless the nations with the gospel. And for 200 years, uh, the United States Church has done that. And Lord, I pray that you would um, continue that glorious tradition of sending missionaries from the churches of this land uh, to see the fame and the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ grow. I pray tonight would be just a small part in encouraging that task. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm a professor of missions at the Cebu Graduate School of Theology. And we've uh, been teaching there for many years. But the last few years, our work has expanded uh, greatly, far beyond the Philippines, and it's expanded globally. And we work with what we call uh, diaspora people. Those are people on the move, migrating People, whether they're refugees, whether they're fleeing from natural disaster or war, whether they are economic migrants seeking work in other lands or international students, there are millions and millions of them on the move all around the world. And we work in this area of what we call diasporas. Now, you can forget everything else I say tonight, but I would want you to remember this one thing. So here's the big idea you can get right from the beginning. You know, uh, 200 years, the, the uh, Protestant church has been engaged in the modern missions movement. And it's just been a, an incredibly miraculous movement, the number of people who have heard the gospel around the world in the last 200 years. But there's still one group, uh, one area that's been very difficult for us to penetrate, and that's the, the great Muslim and Hindu and Buddhist cultures. Right now, tonight, there are still about 2 billion people on this globe who have no access to a 
culturally relevant gospel witness. Yeah, they might be able to tune into some radio program or whatever and hear something about Jesus, but it's not really presented to them in such a way that that it's a live option for them. It's still something very distant, very foreign, often connected with people they see as their enemies. Two billion people are really still outside of a clear presentation of the gospel. Every day, about 50,000 of them pass into eternity. That, that bothers me, to be honest. That bothers me every single day. I can't stop thinking about that number. But what if someone came along and said, you know, we haven't been very successful at sending people who look like me uh, to tell people in the Middle East about Jesus, right? We've been trying for 200 years. We just haven't been real good at it, have we? Uh, But what if someone came along and said, you know what, if we could just change things a little bit from what we're doing, that we could send literally tens of thousands of trained Christian witnesses into those very lands. And they wouldn't come in as some, you know, uh, outsider, but they would be living and working there. They'd be living in the same apartment buildings. Their kids would be going Uh, to the same schools, they'd be playing together on the same playgrounds, they'd be shopping in the same stores. They would be thoroughly embedded with, with those unreached peoples in those lands. Would you think that was something worth doing? Would you think it would be worth doing for us to be able to send tens of thousands of motivated and equipped witnesses into those lands that don't have the gospel? Well, if that interests you, then you should be interested in what I'm going to share tonight. Because if, if God allows us to do the things uh, that, that we hope he'll allow us to do, it will actually result in tens of thousands of trained and motivated witnesses living and working in those, those lands that where the gospel right now uh, is non-existent. And we call that idea diaspora missions. Because the main change is that the people are going to go and live and work in those lands. They're not us. They're not Americans. They're not British. They're not Europeans. They are the Christians of those churches that our missionaries have been starting for the last 200 years. They are the Christians who come from the Philippines, where we work. They are the Christians who come from Brazil. the, The Christians who come from Guatemala. The Christians who come from Kenya and Nigeria. They're the ones who are moving into these lands. And if we can, if we can get a hold of them and, and motivate them and train them and network them together and, and to Jesus fellowships throughout these countries, they will become a brand new growing force for missions that we've never seen before in the world. That's how missions is changing. That's what I want you to remember tonight. You can forget everything else whatever you want to do, but if you could just remember that, if, if, if God blesses the way we hope that he will, this could result in tens of thousands of witnesses going to those two billion people who tonight have no access to the gospel. All right, you got that down? Now we're going to try to go back and explain how that may work. Well, we call this um, diaspora missions. The print back on that back wall is very small. <laughs> I'm going to have to read it from here. Sorry, I thought I was going to be able to see it back there. Uh, 
But diaspora means to scatter. You know, the sower went out and he scattered the seed. He dispersed it. And so diaspora means the scattering of people. It's a biblical idea. God scattered his people uh, in the Old Testament. Remember, the Assyrians came and uprooted the ten northern tribes, and then the Babylonians came. That's the great diaspora of the Jews. And then later on, after Jesus' time, the Romans came through and scattered the Jews again. So that's normally when we use the word diaspora, uh, we think about the scattering of the Jews. And you know, God used that scattering, didn't he? He purified the, the people of Israel when he took them off to Babylon. You know, when they came back from Babylon, they never again worshipped idols. They had other problems, but the one thing they never did again was they never worshipped idols. So God used that scattering for his purposes. We believe that God continues to use the scattering of peoples today for his purposes. I've got a clicker, don't I? Let's see what it does. Look at that. All right. You know, when the Apostle Paul went out to preach, when he went from town to town, do you know where he went first? Where did he go? You know, the synagogues. Why did he go to the synagogues? Because the Jews had been scattered throughout the Roman world, and they already knew of the Old Testament. They already knew about the promises of the coming of Messiah. So Paul had a great place to start. And also it was in the synagogues that the Gentile God-fearers gathered too to hear about the God of Abraham and, and uh, Isaac and Jacob. So God used the scattering of the Jews to prepare for the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. It says there in Acts 14 that at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual to the Jewish synagogue. He always showed up there first, right? Now, when I go to places around the country, I always show up at the Panera first, and I get my cup of coffee and those no-calorie muffins. I just pray those calories right out of there. But Paul, he didn't have a Panera. I, I feel sorry for him. So God has used the diaspora, the scattering of people, from the very beginning of the church. It's not something new. You know, after the persecution of the church in chapter 8, the church was scattered and they went all the way up to Antioch. And we're told in the 11th chapter of Acts that it was at, at um, Antioch that they first began to talk to the Gentiles about Jesus. So the whole mission to the Gentiles, that's us, most of us, I imagine here, started because God scattered his people. The scattering of people has been used by God since the very beginning of the church. It's not a new idea. All right? But now today there's a real intensification of the scattering of people because of all the advances in technology, and communication and travel, ships, planes, the Internet, and mostly because of the, of the rise of these global businesses. People are, are bringing workers in from around the world. And so there's a great intensification of people traveling around the globe. Uh, the, the, the UN people who track this tell us that a few years ago, in the last census they did, that they could count about 215 million people who are living and working outside of the country of their birth. Now, if you throw in their children who were born in that country where they're working, that number pops up to over 400 million people. Now, if you add the people who are scattered but haven't left 
the, the political boundaries of their country, particularly in places like China, where if you grow up in southeast China, you might be among the Fukian people and, and, and uh, traditional Chinese culture, but you may actually be starting a business in northwest China among the Uyghur people who are Turkic. They don't even speak uh, a, a Chinese language. They speak a Turkic language, and they're Muslim. Now, you haven't left China, but you've traveled as far away from your homeland you know, as someone who has left their home country. We call these internal diasporas. There are about 700 million people who haven't left their home country, but they're outside of their, of their home culture. You add all that up together, it's well over a billion people are on the move around the globe. There's been a great intensification of people moving. Let's go on to the next. And today, the church is beginning to discover the importance of these people on the move. It's beginning to discover diaspora missions. We believe that God is sovereignly behind the movement of people around the earth. We know that he was sovereignly behind the setting of of boundaries of people, right? That's what the Bible tells us. We also believe that he's always been involved in people moving. You know, our own faith starts with one man moving, right? He moves from Ur of the Chaldees. Abram is called by God. He becomes a wanderer, and he winds up in the promised land. So from the very beginning, God has been behind and sovereignly using the movements of people. And starting around the 1990s, the missions world began to recognize that there was something going on here that was very important. And, you know, the the first group, the first church that began to realize how important this was were the Filipinos. Filipinos were the first people to actually, from a national level, advocate and, and, and motivate their people to leave their home country as a workforce. Back in the 1960s, Marcos, the president of the Philippines, uh, for some rather selfish reasons, began to advocate that Filipinos would leave the Philippines and work outside of the country. He wanted the foreign investment to come back from their wages, their remittances, and he also figured he could get rid of a lot of troublemakers that way. (laughs) That's the truth, by sending them overseas. Those first Filipinos went into Hawaii. They were pineapple harvesters. But soon Filipinos were scattered around the globe. And the Filipino church began to recognize our, our fellow Filipinos are going to places where we can't send missionaries. They're going into the Middle East. They're going into China. They're going all over the world. What if we began to see them as a resource for mission? So the, the ones who actually were at the very uh, uh, groundbreaking level of this work were a group of Filipinos. That's how Jan and I became involved in it as we moved to the Philippines and uh, began working with the Philippines Missions Association and other groups that were training uh, these Filipino overseas workers. So the church has begun to discover how important these people on the move are. But in doing so, the church also had to face some uh, attitudes. You know, it's, it's, it's hard sometimes to accept uh, what's different and what's strange. And sometimes it's hard to accept when people move into our midst that aren't like us. But you know what? I believe uh, very sincerely that God cares for the stranger 
And even when that stranger is our enemy, God loves his enemies. Did you know that? God loves his enemies. He cares for the strangers. You look up here at Exodus. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. There are many times in the Old Testament where God says, you look out for the alien among you. Actually, often sometimes those are put right together with the command to care for the widow and the fatherless. And, you know, in the Old Testament, if they didn't care for the widow and the fatherless, those were called crying sins. Have you ever heard that? Because those were people without any status, without any power. They had no one to, to stand up for them. So when they were oppressed, God said their sin, that sin cries out to me. And he says, I will be their protector. So God's been very strong throughout the Old Testament that when the, the alien, the stranger, the one with no uh, political status comes among us, that his people are to care for them. They're to make sure that they're not oppressed. He also loves his enemies. How do I know that? I know it because he loved me. For a while we were yet his enemies. Romans 5 says that he gave his son for us. Isn't that true? Yeah. God just doesn't love the people who like him. Actually, <laughs> if that was true, not one of us would be sitting in this building tonight, would it? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes the strangers that God sends among us are actually our enemies, aren't they? Yeah, that's a hard one. But God expects us to love them and to care for them. And the best way to love and care for them is to tell them about Jesus. You know, this isn't a political program. And I said this morning, we talk a bit about that. I suppose that Christians could have many different views about immigration laws in different countries around the world. We work with that everywhere that I work uh, across the globe. We, uh, the governments wonder about who should be allowed in, who should not be allowed in, who should have a passport, who shouldn't have a passport, who should have a visa. It's not just true here in the United States. It's true all over. And I suppose there may be many different ways to think about that politically. You know. But however you decide about that, whether you want strict immigration laws, whether you want to build a fence across the Mexican border. You know, I'm glad we didn't build one across the Canadian border because my father was Canadian. <laughs> Might not have gotten here if we had done that. But whatever you decide about that, and, you know, I hope you'll decide on, on good, good reasons, sound reasons, what's best for, you know, uh, the people of, of, of both countries. But whatever you decide politically, it doesn't change a thing about what we do biblically, right? It just doesn't change what we do biblically. When God sends someone to us, when he sends a stranger or an alien among us, our role is clear. Just care for them, love them, right? I mean, we know that. I know that as a pastor, I have people come into my office that, woo. <laughs> I've had people who uh, weren't the best people in the world. I've had people sit across from my desk who were murderers, who were rapists. I didn't like at all what they did, but I knew exactly what my job was, was to love them, tell them about Jesus, right? So when the alien comes among us, God wants us to care for the stranger, tell them about Jesus. However you decide things in terms of who you vote for and what immigration laws we pass, 
I suppose there are a number of different things. doesn't change the fact that Trinity Baptist and Sun City Center is called by God to care for the alien and the stranger that he sends among them. And that's part of diaspora missions. So the church is waking up to this reality. All right? And it has great, great, great potential for those countries, those, those Muslim and Hindu and Buddhist worlds. We call those countries the 1040 window. Now, I'm going to ask you, would you raise your hand? Have you ever heard that term before, 1040? All right, we got some missiologists with us. That's great. Millions of Christians who aren't from North America or Europe or Russia, but are from the majority world, what we call the global south, the global east, they are moving into that world because there's work there. They come from poor countries, and they're, and they're looking for work. And we call those lands, those lands where they are restricted in terms of our ability to send missionaries, we call those lands the 1040 window. Here's a nice map of it. About 90% of the people groups, the linguistic, ethnic groups who don't have the gospel, who are unreached, about 90% of them live in that window. That's where those 2 billion people who have no access to the gospel lives. About 5% of the missionary force who look like me, good-looking guys, no, <laughs> who my, my Filipino brothers called me the Exungupati, um, I'm the white brother, because <laughs> some of them have very dark skin. The missionary force who looks like me, only about 5% of our whole missionary force is in there. And it's not because we don't want to be there. We want to be there. We just can't get in there. It's very difficult. They don't give missionary visas to Saudi Arabia <laughs> as much as I like to get one. But millions of Christians are moving into that window. There are 2 million Filipinos right now today who live and work in Saudi Arabia. 2 million. We know at least seven, somewhere between seven to 10% of them are evangelical, born again, Bible believing Christians. That means there's somewhere between 70 to, uh, no, well over that. Uh, if it was 7%, it would be, what's my math there, Jan? 140,000? What's well, a big number? All right. <laughs> There are tens of thousands of evangelical Filipinos who live and work in Saudi Arabia right now. So if someone asks you, how many Christians live in Saudi Arabia? How many Christians live and work in Saudi Arabia? Most people say, well, maybe 10, 20, 30. There's well over 50, 70, maybe up to 100,000 Filipinos alone. That doesn't count the Christians from the subcontinent of India who are working in Saudi Arabia or the Kenyans or the Nigerians or the Brazilians. There are tens of thousands of Christians working throughout that 1040 window. But you know what? They don't know their missionaries. They didn't go there as missionaries. They went there to flee poverty from their homeland. They went there to put food on the table for their, their wives and their kids and their parents and their aunts. <laughs> they live together in big family groups, right? They don't know that they're missionaries. They're there but they don't see themselves yet as God's representative to that land. Now, I work with a group that is really helping to, to define what we mean by this missions 
in the diaspora, diaspora missions. And when we think about it, we think about it in three different ways. So here's a little lesson for you missions tonight. We won't spend very long on it. But the first one is what we call missions to the diaspora. That's the one we're most familiar with. That's where these um, unevangelized people, uh, like Muslims, move into contact with the church. Uh, that's a street sign from Toronto. Toronto is the most ethnically mixed city in North America. Those street signs, I don't know, can you see them? Uh, Wentworth, but underneath is the translation into Chinese. That section of Toronto is all Chinese. I went into a Tim Hortons restaurant. I was the only non-Chinese guy sitting in the restaurant. You know, it was interesting. I was sitting in that restaurant, and... uh, there were four Chinese sitting next to me, and they were talking in English, and they were having a conversation about God. And, you know, I'm pretty rude, so I just leaned over and said, you guys are talking about God. What's going on here? And now this is a little sad, but still it's important. Two of them said, we're Mormons. We're Mormons from China, from mainland China, and we've been sent here to reach the Chinese diaspora for Mormonism in Toronto. The Mormons get this. They're, they're way ahead of us on this. But anyway, we're familiar with, the di- with missions to the diaspora. That's when the Muslims or the Chinese or the Hindus move into contact with the church. Just next door to us, where we have a house over in Orlando, two Pakistani Punjabis, a man and a wife and his daughter, moved in next door to us. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> They've made a mistake. Uh, because we're going to invite them over to our house, we're going to love on them, and we're going to give them a Jesus film in Urdu <laughs> and say, watch this, because we want to talk to you about it. So we're used to that. People move into contact with the gospel. That's the most common type of, of diaspora that we're used to. But we also have what we call missions through the diaspora. And that's where Christians from a country, move out of their homeland to work in some other country, and others from their same country, their their countrymen, move with them who aren't Christians, and they're able to witness to them. So we have have great success in witnessing from one countryman to another in the diaspora. Many Filipinos are led to Christ in Hong Kong because of the witness of Christian Filipinos to nominally Roman Catholic Filipinos. Millions of Chinese have been led to Christ as they've been scattered around the world by Chinese Christians. Everywhere the Koreans go, they start Korean churches and win other Koreans to Christ. We call that missions through the diaspora. Very powerful missions tool. And then finally, this is the area that Jan and I work in the most. This is what we call missions beyond the diaspora. That's a a construction worker, a Muslim construction worker. In, in the Middle East. And this is when Christians move from one country into an area that's unreached, like Filipinos moving into Kuwait City. And they're able to begin to witness to the Arabs there who are living around them in Kuwait City. That is the type of diaspora missions that has the greatest potential, but also is the most difficult to do. And that's the area that Jan and I are helping mission organizations learn how to do. And that's what the Baxters do. I'm the director of Diaspora Ministries for Converge Worldwide. We work with our missionaries around the world uh, to help them learn 
to to see these migrating people groups and to um, uh, to bring the gospel to them, but also to use the Christians among those groups to reach others. These are apartment buildings in Kuwait City. They are filled with workers from all around the world. Every unreached people group you can imagine is living in those apartment buildings. And part of our job, a good part of our job, is helping converge missionaries and other missionaries learn how to, to not only reach the unreached in those apartment buildings, but how to, to motivate and mobilize and train the Christians who are living in those apartment buildings in Kuwait City, Christians from the Philippines, from India, from, from Indonesia, from Kenya, how to train and motivate them to reach the unreached among them. And there are just tens and tens of thousands of them living in those buildings. What else do we do? Uh, I work with a group called the Global Diaspora Network. Uh, That's sort of a a subgroup of a larger group called the Lausanne Committee for World Evangelization, which was started by uh, Reverend Billy Graham and Dr. John Stott and uh, Bill Bright of Campus Crusade and others. In 1974, the Lausanne Movement started with a large congress in Lausanne, Switzerland. Almost every mission organization in the world uh, is part of the Lausanne Covenant. They've signed on a Lausanne Covenant. And they create sort of think tank and consulting groups. And I'm part of the Global Diaspora Network uh, with the Lausanne Covenant. And with the Lausanne Covenant, we help mission training schools begin to train their missionaries on how to work with, with migrating people groups. This is a picture of me. I'm in the blue shirt. Larry Caldwell sitting right next to me in the white. He's another converged missionary. He's our director of training and strategy. And we're in a lovely little town called Vesosa, uh, Brazil, up in the mountains of Brazil, at the Center for Evangelical Missions, just a tremendous missions training school in Brazil. Brazilians make great missionaries. And they asked Larry and I to come to, to help them begin um, classes and bring into their curriculum uh, classes on reaching migrating people groups. So Larry and I taught what is probably the first class ever taught in Brazil on diaspora missions. That was a real treat. That was a few years ago. So we've been helping mission schools around the world to begin to train missionaries and how to work with diaspora missions. What else do we do? Well, uh, there's a, a group uh, called the U.S. Center for World Missions. A couple of years ago, they came and asked if I would help them start a ministry to help U.S. sending agencies work with, with people on the move. So we started a group called Next Move, and that is centered for helping United States mission sending agencies like the International Missions Board of the Southern Baptists, Pioneers, SEND, um, Wycliffe, uh, Frontiers. All of these groups have become uh, part of Next Move. And we're helping them as they sort of reorganize part of what they do, how to send their mission uh, missionaries and, and their, their mission training and their resources to come into contact with people on the move. So that's another thing that we do. Uh, I was able to present an online webinar for mission uh, executives uh, a couple years ago. You know, I learned something when I did that webinar. Uh, I used a, just a PowerPoint and they evaluated it afterwards, these mission leaders, and the evaluation came back that it was boring. <laughs> I may be boring you right now. 
Well, I learned something. I'm never going to do a, uh, my own PowerPoint when I do this. I'm going to get some young kid, right, with all the, the, the squiggly things that are going on. So uh, we've had an opportunity to help mission agencies uh, begin to, to retool, to rethink how they do what they do. And finally, we do continue to work in the Philippines. Uh, I, when we first made this change to work with with diaspora missions, we asked if we could be allowed to continue to work and teach one semester a year in the Philippines. So we continue to do that. Uh-oh, wrong button. Where we go? There we are. In March, I'll be back. This is the uh, cohort of our first Ph.D. Um, group from the Cebu Graduate School of Theology. We are the only um, evangelical seminary south of Manila that offers a Ph.D. in theology. And we need to do that because we are training the faculty of all the other Bible colleges in the southern Philippines. And so these guys you're looking at will soon be uh, faculties and deans of other evangelical Bible colleges. So uh, we'll be back in there in March uh, to continue the, the training of these sorts of guys in the Philippines. Well, that's what we do. But everything we do goes back to that one idea of helping the world of missions take their personnel, their resources, and their training and to bring it into contact with these millions of Christians from countries like the Philippines and Kenya who are moving into these lands where these two billion people live who have no access to the gospel to take our resources and training and to bring it to these people so they become motivated and trained and encourage witnesses to the unreached people groups of the world. Everything that Jan and I do is for that goal. And we believe if God blesses us, we'll see tens of thousands of them trained. There was a Filipino woman, Ruthie. That's not a real name, but I'm, I, we don't really use real names when we talk about people in the Middle East. She went over to work as a nurse in um, a Middle Eastern country, let's say Oman. This is a true story. And while she was there, she was a Christian, but she was away from her church. She had no support, and she uh, became uh, backslidden in her faith. And uh, an Arab man there in Omani, she caught his eye, very sweet lady, and he fell in love with her, businessman there, and married her. Well, soon after she uh, married him, she realized she probably shouldn't have done that because they were unequally yoked. And she became involved in a, in a small Filipino uh, fellowship that was starting there. These are illegal fellowships. And so her faith was rekindled. But now she was married to this Muslim man. And, and she did what a good Christian wife is supposed to do, right? She loved him and just served him and loved him and prayed for him. And over the years, as he watched his Filipino wife, who he loved deeply, and how she treated him and, and, and cared for him, loved him, he became more and more dissatisfied being a Muslim. This is true. And so finally he came to the place where he realized that, that Ruthie, his wife, really had a connection with God that, that made a real difference in her life. He didn't have that. Well, the, the Filipino uh, leader of the Global Diaspora Network that I work with, Dr. Joy Tira, was in Oman doing some training for our Filipino leaders there. And Ruthie came to him and said, I want you to come to my house tonight. I want you to come and have dinner. So 
Joy came, this Filipino, and had a wonderful dinner there. They're gracious people. They are great at hospitality. And during dinner, they, were, they had uh, water on the table. And Joy said to Ruthie's husband, he said, water's pretty important here in Oman. It's a desert country. <laughs> he said, yes. He said, water is what gives us life. And Joy said to him, tonight, would you let me tell you about the living water that will give you eternal life? And Joy said, the man began to cry. And he said, yes, I want to hear about the living water. And that night, Joy led him to Jesus Christ. The man was so moved by this, he took Joy up into his, his private quarters in the house. And he, out of his closet, he took one of these you know, Bedouin robes and the hat and everything, and he put it on Joy. And he said, this clothing is now yours, and this means that you are now in our family. You are my family. Isn't that an incredible story? It's just an incredible story. That's what we want to see happen thousands and thousands and thousands of times over. And we want to say thank you for letting us have a part. It's actually, we're amazed, we are amazed, but it's actually an important part in seeing the missions world move towards us. And we couldn't do any of it if it wasn't for you. So I want to say thank you for this church and for your support of the Baxters. And you're going to have a time to ask us questions here in just a few minutes. Hopefully it wasn't too confusing. What we do is a little different, but I believe it's incredibly important, and you have a part in it. Thank you.